This episode of All Things History with Amhissa was made in association with the University of Manitoba History Students Association. The University of Manitoba campuses are located on the original lands of the Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and on the homeland of the Métis Nation. We respect the treaties that were made on these territories, we acknowledge the harms and mistakes of the past, and we dedicate ourselves to moving forward in partnership with Indigenous communities in a spirit of reconciliation and collaboration. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of All Things History with Amhissa. I am your host, Hannah Bolek. Today, we will be discussing online and in-person learning, teaching, and research with our guest, University of Manitoba medieval history professor and acting head of the history department, Professor Roshin Kosser. So welcome, Professor Kosser. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Hannah. It's so nice to to be here. It's so nice to have a chance to talk with you. I guess we'll start just talking about the last year and a half, as crazy as it's been. I've been lucky enough to have taken an in-person and virtual course with you. Um, yeah, I, took, right. I took History uh, 2420, the Medieval World in person, and History 3110, uh, Medieval Women. Mm -hmm. What approach did you take to your virtual classes? You know, I think it's so interesting. I was thinking about this before um, before we met today, and I was thinking about what, what I tried to do to make it still feel that we were in the classroom, in a sense, and, and what I tried to do to take advantage of some of the, the differences. So the first thing that I did, and you know this very well, is that I made all my classes synchronous. And, and quite a number of our colleagues did that, right? It was a sense that if we were all meeting at the same time um, during the week, that we would have a, a, certainly it helped for me to have a sense of, of structure to my day. Um, I have to say my classes last year were the real bright spots in my, in my week, you know, knowing that I was going to meet with students and we were going to talk about interesting things um, and it was going to be live. Uh, that helped a lot. Um, and I think also I tried to, and, and I might, if I were teaching next year, which I, I'm not, but um, I, 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 I might do things a little bit differently than I did, where I, I still tried to lecture quite a bit. And I'm not sure how happy I am with that choice. You know, um, in some ways, I, and I'm seeing it now myself this summer where I've attended some workshops and some different kinds of things where I've been on the receiving end of a bunch of information coming to me through the screen. And uh, it's hard to sit there, you know, in your living room or your bedroom or wherever it is for, you know, long periods of time and take in this information and not have the other people around you to kind of keep you focused. And certainly the kind of person that, and learner that I am, I found that a little bit hard. Um, but I did lecture quite a bit and, uh, and, and we did try to have discussions. I will say I was one of the people who initially thought that the Zoom breakout rooms were going to be like so excellent and then they really weren't. Um, <laughs> and you know this from our third year class, yeah. you know, I experimented <laughs> with a number of things. And I think, I think a few of us did this, right, where we tried, we tried various things on. We thought, yeah, you know, the breakout rooms will create the same sort of feeling that you get in small class discussions. For me, for the kind of teacher that I am and for the kinds of classes that I teach, they really didn't. But I have colleagues who said that they thought that they worked well and that they thought that the breakout rooms were energizing for students and, and, and helpful. 
So, so those are kind of the things where I try to keep things as similar as possible uh, to the, the in-person experience. But then I, I decided, I remember this feeling last summer thinking, okay, I have to find ways to take advantage of the, the differences that there are. And I have to make it not just be kind of, you know, plan B, but have <laughs> it be something where we're doing, you know, we're doing something and, and we're taking real advantage of, of what we have, of, of all these platforms. And the biggest one was probably the simplest, which was that in my second year class, the chat on Zoom was one of the revelations for me of like teaching in general, was seeing students engage with each other through the chat. And I know for sure that some students who might not in the in-person classroom might not feel comfortable speaking up, they spoke up in the chat. And to the extent that sometimes I had to actually rein in the chat and I had to like say to people, okay, now we're focusing you know, on whatever it is that we're doing today. But I found that you know, having the chat function, I will try when we go back to face-to-face to find ways to incorporate something like that into my face-to-face classroom. I don't know if that was your experience. Did you find that having um, you know, chats was, was helpful? I'll start with the asynchronous yeah. synchronous learning. Um, I found synchronous learning way better for me just because it gave me a set schedule. I'm a very routine person and it was even better for my mental health as well, just because I wasn't constantly stressed. Okay. I have to watch this video. Like I have all of this other stuff to do outside of class, but also watch these lecture videos on my own time. And sometimes like scheduling that can be kind of crazy. So having a set time where, you know, you have to be in one place at one time was great. And it also gives you the live like interaction um, or the opportunity for live interaction. Breakout rooms, hit or miss, depending on the (laughs) class and depending on like the group you were with. I took history of capitalism and Mm -hmm. that class just naturally had a lot of outspoken people in it. Breakout rooms worked really well in those situations. Other classes where it was more uh, maybe lecture based and you're trying to discuss like a topic rather than like a contested issue, maybe yes. a, a quite less discussion. So it just yeah. depends on what you're talking about. And then by chance, maybe you get some more quiet people. Maybe you get some more talkative people. It just depends. One thing that I also found was that having bigger group discussion and the prof kind of leading it and that being the, like the class rather than lecture I found really useful because I was more like engaged with it rather than just, you know, like you said, having somebody talk at me. And I found that like in medieval women, that was like a lot of what we did was talking about like articles we read. And I thought that was like super useful because I really absorbed the information and got to think about it in different ways rather than somebody just telling me how to think about it, I guess. It's, in, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm just thinking about what you're saying. And I'm thinking about a colleague of mine who said, uh, and I think this was Jocelyn Thorpe, and, and she talked about an idea that maybe someone else had given her, uh, which I thought was excellent. And I, if I were teaching this year, I would try it, which was that you um, students would identify the kind of breakout room that they wanted to be in at the beginning of a course. So let's say you're a quiet person and you feel uncomfortable, um, as I actually might sometimes feel um, with the the having, you know, three or four other people and having to talk with them, you could choose to join a group that only communicated by chat, for example. Um, And then the the outgoing people might choose a group where they, you know, where they did have that interaction with other people. And I thought, what a great idea, you know, for people to identify what they need. 
think that chat feature is actually going to be um, a kind of a loss for some people because yeah. I, like I would I'm pretty quiet in in-person classes as well like I don't speak up that much or I'm like just thinking about okay I have to raise my hand like let's raise yeah. your hand and then then the moment yeah. passes or something and it's just but chat kind of just gives you the opportunity to throw anything out there at any time really and and not exactly. only like the professor can see it and other students can see it as well and you can even interact with like students privately if you you know have questions that that's not right yeah asking so yeah. that was one of the the great things about zoom was just having these like different options for people who aren't necessarily wanting to speak out or have their cameras on or anything like that that's right and you know i've read a lot of things so we, we've learned a lot this last 18 months and I've, I've read a lot um, of, of different things in kind of the pedagogical literature and also just in kind of the popular press people talking about you know what the losses have been um, and of course there's been a lot of loss right um, but I do think that that we keeping in mind this question of of how for some people um, this has been an opportunity that they've had an opportunity to participate uh, in classes in ways that they didn't perhaps before. And that sitting in a big group of people for some people is very, very overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so, so knowing that they, as you say, knowing that you could maybe make a comment while a prof is talking and all the focus doesn't have to go on you, right? right? It can, <laughs> it, but you know, and, and I made a point of in, in, in that second year class of, you know, I would, I, I got pretty good at, at talking and reading the chat at the same time and being able to then say, oh, you know, so-and-so is bringing out an idea here or so-and-so has raised something here that seems important. And, you know, that person didn't have to, again, they didn't have to have all the focus on them, but their idea got you know attention. And uh, I found that I learned more from students this year. Um, and, and so that was, you know, for me, it was, it was, that was very positive. And yeah, so, you know, I think there's a lot of effort being made at the university right now to figure out kind of how we'll have the infrastructure uh, in the future in our classrooms to do some of these things. And, you know, I think that, that those of us who teach, we need to be thinking like this. We need to be thinking about how can we use these lessons, not just walk away from all of this, you know, now that like we've created certain things together, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Just like off the top of my head, one thing I thought that would be cool when we uh, eventually go back to in-person learning is if like a, an in-person class could all join like a Teams group and you could have it on the screen and then with your laptops or phones, send in a chat. I think that would be great because totally. Yeah. Actually, really thinking about that now, I would enjoy that very much. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, you've got it. And that's what I, you know, I, I, as you know, in that third year class, I experimented a little bit with teams and we've been using it a lot in the department um, in, in terms of kind of doing administration. And we've discovered that it makes an enormous difference for us um, communicating with each other, uh, you know, for all kinds of different things. And, and, and a number of us said like, this is way better, but you're right. Also for the classroom, you know, that's a, it's a platform that we have. Um, it's available to us. It's available to all students. You can use it on your phone or, you know, on a laptop or whatever. And yeah. it, and it actually, I think is really, really helpful. So, you know, I, I'm hoping that, well, I know actually, cause we've had a whole bunch of conversations, colleagues in, in history about these exact things. And what I've found is that people maybe, you know, we were all a little bit nervous at the beginning of this process, you know, wanting things to be okay for you guys um, and having to make those changes very quickly. 
but people have become quite adept at, you know, doing this work now. And I think, you know, we're all figuring out our individual sort of teaching personalities, um, even, even through the screen. So, uh, and I'm, I'm lucky because, you know, my husband is Professor Kuford, who's also in, in, in right. the department. And, um, and so we talk a lot at home about our different ways. And, you know, probably for the very first time ever, we've been able to kind of hear each other teaching. And, uh, right. and, you know, I think it's been really interesting for, you know, for both of us, we've learned a lot also from each other in the process. So, so it's been, yeah, it's been, it's been really valuable. Another thing I think that I did that I will keep doing is that when I came to, especially again, I'm thinking about for kind of um, less experienced students, when I came to describing assignments in class, you know, always, of course, you have the in-class time where you're saying, okay, well, here's what we're going to do. And here's what the text is that you're going to read. And but I also started making little videos. I mean, this seemed like this is the simplest thing ever, right? But just little videos that in which I um, maybe went over some, you know, I, I modeled some aspect of the analysis or the writing that we would be doing in this in, in a particular assignment. Um, I maybe had a couple of slides where I, you know, described things that needed to happen. And then I would just upload that to UMLearn. Yeah. And I thought, like, it's so straightforward, you know, but people said, these are really valuable things for extra support and feeling that they were supported. Um, even if they, if it was like midnight and you're thinking about your essay and you can't, you know, you know, you're not going to be able to get an email back from me at that time, but you can listen to me describing what the assignment is. And I think for a lot of people and, and, and for me too, like that made a, a difference. So, you know, yeah. these are all things that we can keep doing. Uh, one thing I really enjoyed about medieval women was, you had a lot of open-ended type projects, which for yes. for some might be difficult <laughs> and others might be like, this is so exciting. Um, yeah. But you always made small videos, like especially we had to create a database, which is something yeah. one of us had never done before. It's very new, so, yeah. Like having you, um, you know, bring in uh, the professor to speak on that um, yeah. and, uh, also recording it and then uploading it after so I could always look back to see you know how how do I do this thing in Excel to yeah. make this section of the database or just like where do I even start you know that's um, right it was all super helpful and yeah I think the another great thing about online learning is that it's not you know a one-time thing where you hear a professor in class say okay this is what we're doing. And then you try and write everything down as quick as you can. Yeah. And then if you miss something, it's like, oh, well, hopefully somebody else got it. Um, yeah. Having like recordings to always look back on and more documents were shared just because we're not seeing each other in person. Uh, I found that super helpful. I was always constantly trying to type notes so quick, or even if you um, like life gets in the way and you can't come to class, there's That's always right. going to be a recording there. So I think yes. recording um, like classes was one of the greatest things to no, I agree. Look back. Yeah. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think that uh, a number of, of us, I think, thought more about accessibility um, mm -hmm. than we had in the past. And I think, you know, I will say for myself, for example, I remember not that many years ago, having students who would say to me that they were not that that um, their anxiety made it very difficult for them to attend class sometimes. Mm -hmm. And um, and I was fairly firm about 
attendance requirements and things like that. And when I look back now, I think, you know, in many ways, what that did was that meant that that the class was really not accessible to students with disabilities. And um, whereas now, you know, this change, and again, you know, individual instructors are making these changes in their own ways, right? So you may have had um, instructors who also are not recording their, their um, lectures. Right. And, you know, that's up to individuals to decide. But mm -hmm. I believed, and I continue to believe that it was very important so that students who, as you say, you know, were having, you know, you know life things happen. Um, and I mean, this year in particular, you know, I had students who had COVID. I had students who had relatives who had COVID. And, you know, and, and there's no way in, in, in which people should be penalized for these awful things that are happening around them. So, yeah, thinking in this kind of accessibility mindset, I think, was, uh, was really helpful. And, uh, and again, you know, something I hope many of us will keep doing. Because I think it creates also a better sense of community in the classroom, right? The students feel like, hey, the prof is really, you know, has their back, is trying to make sure that they can get the information when they need it. And yeah, so, so, so it's really important. Yeah. One thing I wanted to ask you about was yeah. in your in-person classes, such a big part of your teaching style was at the end of class, you'd have a lineup of students at the <laughs> to talk to you, um, you know, just to maybe even talk about like nothing that has to do with anything about the course or just history in general right. or questions. Yeah. Like everybody just loves speaking to you. And that was like just such a great way to connect <laughs> and also get clarification if you need it. How did you make yourself more accessible to students in the virtual space? That's a good question. Um, and there were times when, um, you know, the end of the class would come and people didn't seem necessarily as comfortable just sticking around. Now, there was a kind of in my second year class, there was a group of students who often, as the year wore on, they would stick around and talk to each other and talk a little bit to me. Um, but I, I found that a particular challenge. We did a couple of things in that course that, again, I would try again, um, where, for example, we had, I, I would just say, I'm available on a Monday afternoon. I would open up a Zoom link and anybody who wanted to come could come. And I would say, you know, if you just want to come and use this as an opportunity to get some writing done and just to, you know, to be accountable and say, look, I'm here. I'm going to put my head down for 45 minutes and do some writing. Um, you know, I don't necessarily have a question. And I, I did have a few students who did that. But I think that was one of the things that um, that, that was more of a challenge. We also did some um, some movie watch parties um, in, in 2420. And that was fun. Yeah. And uh, and, you know, Netflix has a feature. Um, where as long as everybody has Netflix, you can do a watch party thing. And I think another, a, a few other platforms do. So I, uh, I think twice in the year we did that and it was, people were, yeah, it was very nice. People were into it. The, those who came were very, you know, and again, used the chat function and chatted to each other. But that is a thing that I think actually we can keep thinking about how to improve. And of course, in September, it's also possible, and I really hope, like working with you guys, that we'll have opportunities to even maybe do some in-person things, yes. um, to have a few, you know, opportunities to actually see each other in the same space, right? But, and maybe from that, we can also then take some suggestions and some ideas for some other work that, that we can do together um, online. And that may help us as we, you know, trying to build community, but it's definitely a, a you know, a challenge in a classroom, in, a, in an online classroom. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Did you think there was anything in any of your classes that really worked? Yeah, a lot of, most of my professors just did uh, like 
the separate Zoom link, like office hours type thing. Um, A lot of them would say that nobody would show up. So it'd just be them like on a Zoom call by themselves. Um, I, I personally usually like stuck around after class if I had a question or anything. So that's kind Mm -hmm. of what I did. But I mean, a lot of times, especially being at home, there's distractions, you're going on yes. to the, write the next thing, you you know, you have another class, maybe you have to get to work, or it's just like, I felt like in online school, it was nonstop, you were always having to do something, there's never a moment in between, it feels like to do something, just even having this 10 minutes or uh, between classes where I would like go to talk to you after class, and then I just walked my next class, um, yeah. having those minutes in between, makes a huge difference on kind of your connection with the class and that's right I think that to me there's the there was a sense in which everything was at the same intensity level all the time you know that you're always like yeah you're always and I I find this also in my meetings and things with colleagues that you know when you're on when you're on zoom and you're and you're doing this you're always at the same fairly high level of intensity and and it's, and whereas when we're in person, that goes up and down, doesn't it? Like you're in a lecture and you're really concentrating and focusing and then, okay, we're finished now. You can chat to somebody, as you say, you can have a walk, you know, cause you have to, yeah. but, but, it, but it, you know, but it level, it lowers that level of intensity and, and it, it helps you regroup and get that back again for the, for the next time. And yeah, we didn't really have that this year. So yeah, that's, yeah. that's one thing I really struggled with. And I also think that's probably a reason why professors may have found that students didn't come to like extra you know office hour type zoom calls just because constantly going like okay I don't have time to spend this hour like on a zoom call that's not absolutely necessary yes um which is it's difficult because you're like students are losing out on really valuable like connection with their professors and then obviously like clarifications questions um yeah anything of that sort it's kind of a loss but it's it's hard to balance yeah exactly and i think we also have to keep in mind that you know our face to face lives are never perfect either and uh, <laughs> and you know there are lots and lots of people who have office hours who complain about sitting, you know, when they're actually in person, who complain that they sit in their offices all by themselves for two hours and nobody shows up, right? So, you know, there is that. One thing that I think that has real potential is that online office hours mean that, and and we might need to think about this a little bit more in the future, but they, they, they have that potential to mean that more students can actually come and and contact you because they don't have to, for example, if they have to work, you know, and they have to leave campus quickly at the end of classes, um, you know, that, that means that they don't have that, the same kind of possibility of hanging around, let's say in an afternoon to find the profit in their office. Right. Well, what if we did our office hours, you know, at other kinds of times of day? Now, people might not like this idea very much, but, you know, um, at non-traditional times of day, right. once in a while, right, to allow students to do work to you know, be able to also contact us. And for some of us, in particular those of us who don't have little kids anymore, you know, that we might be able to do things like that. So I think we have to kind of think, uh, we're, we're gonna keep learning about you yeah. know, what, how we can use these, these, yeah, all of this. Yeah, there's pros and cons to, to each, obviously, as Definitely. everything, but actually having a, the different times or unconventional office hour times, I think would be 
really helpful because a lot of office hours fell when I had classes or, um, yes. or it was at a time where I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, I have to go to the meeting or club or yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Time. Yeah. So, yeah. um, yeah. yeah having, I mean, most students work at night, which I guess is not the yeah. best for profs. Cause they, you know, have been going all day and that's not something you really <laughs> wanted to, I guess, but once in a while, I think that would be really helpful. I think you're right. And I think the other thing that we're learning about remote work and even as I'm talking to you right now, right. Is, is that mm-hmm. we can do it in different places. So I am not in Winnipeg right now. I'm in mm-hmm. BC and, you know, so my work day is it starts very early because I'm trying to stick with Winnipeg time. Right. So, you know, I have meetings starting at seven o'clock in the morning, BC time, which is fine actually. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and I'm able to, you know, be out here where my family lives and you know, I get to see them and I get to do a few nice things too, but also um, so we're learning that there is flexibility. And yeah. I think that, you know, again, maybe sometimes with our scheduling, we could, you know, think about that as well. Yeah. And I think these are conversations that we'll get to have maybe, maybe more this year where we're not reacting so much, I hope, to, you know, the, the kind of dire events around us. And, and I'm hoping as they get a little less dire, we might be able to do that. Now let's move on to your research, because I know you mentioned sure. having meetings with your colleagues and I... Yeah. Uh, read your like description and looked into uh, some of your writing and it Mm -hmm. is super interesting. So uh, do you want to briefly describe what you're doing right now? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So I I guess I can step back and say that, um, you know, the beginning of the pandemic was um, from in terms of my research was also, unfortunately, the beginning of what I thought was going to be a new research project where I was going to head off in an entirely new direction, which had um, things to do with environmental history and with ideas about the seasons um, in in the Middle Ages. Um, so I work, in, as people don't necessarily know, I work in mainly 14th and now 15th century Italian history. Um, and so I had this big external grant from SHRC, which is the big granting agency in Canada um, that academics in the humanities and social sciences apply to and, and get funding from. So I had a lot of money and for a four-year project um, to, to do this big thing. And I got it in April of 2020. <laughs> so, um, and unfortunately, because I am also an archival historian, you know, the whole plan for the project was that I was going to spend um, three years, um, each spring of of 2020, 21 and 22, I was going to spend several weeks each spring in Italy in different archives um, across the peninsula, collecting materials for this project. And clearly, I haven't been able to do that yet. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm really hoping that perhaps next year, I'll I'll be able to, but I had to kind of pivot. Um, And I think for many of us, uh, last summer was not a summer for research that for many of us, we um, we were kind of immersed in thinking about teaching and how we were going to make things, you know, okay for the year to come. Mm-hmm. But I then in the fall started last year, started thinking, well, what can I do? And I'm very lucky because I'm at a certain point in my career where I have a bunch of material that I've collected over the years. And I became an academic before um, a lot of this sort of digital stuff was happening. So in the 1990s, when I was first working in archives, you know, I would get sometimes photocopies of documents to take home or, um, and otherwise I would have to transcribe them while I sat in the archive. Um, But since about 
I'd say about 2002, I got a digital camera and I started, when I went to archives, I started taking pictures of the records that I was working with. And I've amassed this enormous collection of material. And the, the stuff from 2002 now is the quality's not super great, <laughs> but it's still fairly legible, you know. Yeah. And I remember at the time, I remember these conversations with colleagues in the early 2000s where we would say, well, how are you going to read this? Like, you know, it was very rare, for example, at that time for people to have two different monitors. You know, my setup now, like right. as I talk to you, I'm talking to you on one monitor and I have another one beside me that's bigger. At the time, we thought, oh, you have to print everything to read it, right? So we were like thinking I was going to print these, but anyway. <laughs> I didn't do that for very long, but, um, but I do have a lot of material and I also have really good connections with people in Italy. And so in the fall of last year, I was able to write to some archivists and say, you know, um, there was one particular document that I had thought was interesting. I thought maybe I'll just do some more work on this. And it was in the city of Ferrara, um, where I have actually never been. Um, and none of the people that helped, ended up helping me, I have never met them in person. So it was a great COVID experience. Mm -hmm. um, so I wrote to these very nice archivists and I then also wrote to uh, a woman who in, in Ferrara who is a medieval historian. And they agreed that, that um, given the situation that they would send me photographs, beautiful photographs of um, this, this document that I was really interested in. And it's a, so as you know, it's um, from 1421. And it is um, not, it's, it's a register, so it's a kind of bound volume. It's not very long. It's about what would be about 70 pages, 35 folios of, uh, of, of parchment. And it was created by an inquisitor um, in Ferrara. And he was working, well, okay, you know about this. So I'll, I'll try it in a nutshell. Yeah. Basically what he was doing was that the Lord of Ferrara, had gotten very concerned about the um, priests in the city and also in the surrounding area who were living with women and had children. And this is probably most of the clergy um, in that this place and time. And, they, and this is not abnormal. This is very much the way, and I've written about this in, in, in other publications. This is just the way that, that clergy lived at this time. But it was defined as um, as a problem. It had been for centuries, but they basically hadn't done anything about it. And the Lord of Ferrara, for his own reasons, he's an interesting character. He got um, very, very concerned about this in the early, um, late 14 teens, early 1420s. And so he had all of these women expelled from their houses. So in June of 1421, they all had to leave. Some of them had been living um, with their partners for decades and they had many children. One, one woman says she had seven small children. Um, and so the inquisitor then, his job was to interrogate all of the women, all of the ones that they could find um, after they had been expelled to see where were they living? Had they gone back to live with the clergy, which they definitely weren't supposed to be doing um, and how they were earning money and, uh, and what they kind of considered that they were gonna do in their futures. And so this document, this 70 pages is all about the women. And what's really great is that the women speak up um, when they when they when they visited when they were interrogated by the inquisitor they spoke up and they said all kinds of different things and okay. so um, you know in 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 some cases like he 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 would say to them you know what are you intending to do and he had given them essentially two choices which was to either marry a layman or enter a monastery and quite a number of the women said I don't want to do either of those things <laughs> <laughs> 
and uh, and they were you know adamant that they were going to live the way that they um, thought that they should live. And it's you know really quite unusual to hear women's voices in this way at at, at this time period. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, I knew about this document. I had done a very very little bit with it. I had presented um, a paper about it at a conference in the fall of 2019, I guess. And, uh, and I wasn't really sure that I was going to be able with my new project to, you know, do anything more with it. Well, I realized this is what I should work on. You know, I should just focus on this very interesting record. I have some background in this area. I've, I've written about these kinds of women before. Um, and, uh, and, and so I, I started. And then what I realized was that this would be a great collaboration and so the project um, this spring has become very much a collaboration where I have um, a student who had got uh, the research award uh, mm-hmm. to work with me. In fact, she was in our medieval women class. Um, and so she's been working on um, helping to, well, in fact, she has been creating and compiling a database um, of these women. And at the same time, I've been working with Jason Brown, who is um, also teaches in our department um, and, uh, and is an excellent Latinist. And so what Professor Brown is doing is I had a rough transcription of the whole document and he's correcting the transcription and he's translating it into English. So this is, you've had a chance to see some of that. Um, and we are going to, first of all, we're gonna prepare this for publication. We want this to be um, something that people can use for teaching. I have a friend and colleague in the States who's going to use it in her own teaching this fall to kind of see how you know students greet it. Um, and then we're also going to write, I'm going to write something about it. I'm, I'm thinking some sort of short book, something like that. Um, and, uh, and Professor Brown and I are also going to write an article about uh, something that, because he's a, a historian of 15th century Italian legal sources. And uh, so his, what he knows from the, the angle of law and his Latin really complements what I know about what notaries said and what, uh, you know, what, what inquisitorial records are like. And so, yeah, we're gonna put our ideas together and, and create some kind of, of collaborative piece of writing. So we wouldn't have done this, you know, yeah. if, if COVID hadn't happened. So that's kind of exciting. Yeah, I, that's amazing. I, I saw a tweet that you um, mm-hmm. did uh, posted the other day just saying, why why don't we do this more often? Why don't we collaborate more often? So it wasn't necessarily a common thing for historians to do before COVID? No, you know, we, especially medieval historians, we have tended to work alone. Um, I think some of my modern history counterparts have been a little more progressive um, in this way. And even in our department, people like Tina Chen and David Churchill um, have, have written together. Adele Perry has collaborated with, with other colleagues. Um, so we have you know, examples of collaboration in our department, but as medieval historians, we've tended to, and I, I think it's, um, it's, it's unrealistic of us, but we have tended to assume that we have to have all the skills and that all of our work has to be only in one voice. Um, and you know what I'm realizing as I and I've I've written collaboratively before with with colleagues and friends and it's been a wonderful experience. Um, but this project, which is so intricate because it's got all these parts to it, you know, it's got the translation part, um, and then it's got the analysis part and the database part. Far better to have a team doing that, and you get so much more out of the material. And I think as a result, you know, for for potential readers, um, it's going to be a much richer kind of project. 
And yeah, so I, I hope that more people are having this experience that, that I'm having, you know, that they're finding that relying on other people or working with other people. It's, I mean, it really is more fun. Um, and <laughs> yeah, and it's a little bit like what you were saying about synchronous classes. It kind of keeps you honest too, because when you're researching, you can get, it can get very lonely, right? It's just you all by yourself every day. Um, and, uh, and that can, that can be a bit much. Whereas when you're working with other people, it's like you have a meeting scheduled, you're working towards that meeting, you know, you want to make sure that you're going to have something to tell the other person. Uh, so it keeps you focused and, uh, and, and that's really helpful. Mm-hmm. So a large part of this project is obviously the database that um, Allegra and yeah are working on. Um, so yeah. Obviously, digital archival work and databases are going to be more important than ever. So how do you see the progression of uh, digital archives and databases going? That's a really great question. And you're right. I mean, it is, I think, something that, first of all, and, and from that class that you took last year, you know, the first time I'd ever taught students how to, or that databases were a thing and how to make, <laughs> you know, something rudimentary. And quite a number of students said at the end of the class, they said that was really, really hard, but yeah, <laughs> everybody should know how to do this. You know, that this is something really useful in terms of kind of how do we work with, with different kinds of sources, right? It's very generalizable as a, as a, as a, as a strategy. So I think, you know, one thing that I want to do is I want to make sure that students become more aware of, yeah, this as a tool um, for, for doing historical work and including for, you know, I am not a historian who does quantitative work. Like I don't count stuff for the most part. Um, I'm not a stats person. I did a tiny, tiny amount of that when I was doing my PhD, but, you know, that's it, not been a the way that I work. But I think also for those of us who do qualitative analysis, this is a way that we can draw together you know, information, we can make documents speak in interesting ways. But you know, the biggest challenge for us right now is that um, doing this work, we need to then find ways to present it to audiences, right? right. And ideally, this kind of material would, would exist on the web. It wouldn't exist, you know, we wouldn't like publish a book with the database in it. That right. would seem kind of, you know, um, that was something that people would have done, you know, once upon a time, but no longer should we really, you know, we don't need to do that. But one of the things that I know just a little bit from colleagues who've, who've done more of this than I have is how hard it is to actually get support to have this um, material sort of, um, you know, somewhere where it can be accessed over the course of years. And so that's going to be one of the things and that for me is going to be some new learning in the next couple of years as, as we get this material sort of sorted out like this, is where are we going to put it? We don't want it to become, you know, something that becomes obsolete in two or three years. We want it to, to continue to exist. So, yeah, yeah it's important. It definitely mm-hmm. is. And especially there's a much bigger conversation about open educational resources and, you, got it. Um, you know, having databases and digital archives accessible to the general public um like you said so they don't become obsolete but also so that you're not like blocking off academia and like history to a broader population you're you're opening it up to anybody who wants to see it and even past like university students who have access to certain databases and archives like I would love to see just anyone can access these things 
That's right. It's, it's yeah. fun to search around. It really yeah. is. No, you're right. You're right. And you're absolutely right. That, you know, that whole discussion of the, of the idea of open educational resources, that's becoming increasingly something we're talking about. And now we have to make it happen more, right? We have to, you know, and people at all levels, students, you need to be asking certainly their, their profs and, and, uh, and need to be asking, you know, at the level of, of faculties kind of, okay, where is this stuff? And how are you planning to make this available to us? Um, and what I'm finding, what I, what I have often found is that it is pressure from students and the questions that the students ask that get people who might be a little bit entrenched in their, kind of, you know, we've been around for a few decades, we've been doing things a certain way for a while. Um, and it's you guys who, by asking these kinds of questions, can really enact change. So, uh, so it's great to hear that you're, you know, that you're thinking along these lines. And I think you're absolutely right also that, you know, as historians, um, sometimes we have been, I think our discipline has been a kind of gatekeeper that has, you know, pretended to own the past in certain ways, and we don't. And so, you know, there are increasing numbers of people who, um, who, who challenge that idea that, you know, that, and, uh, and yes, we have, as we have certain kinds of training that we value, but um, again, I think we need to we need to make the the materials that we work with as as accessible as possible to people. So basically, accessibility, accessibility. is the whole theme of our conversation, yep. right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah it came mm -hmm. full circle. Um, yeah, exactly. Sure. Yeah, I've over this past summer, I've been working at a small museum here in Winnipeg mm -hmm. and been doing a lot of collections. And I'm the museum educator, so I don't necessarily work a ton with it, but I do a little bit of work mm -hmm. in it. Um, they're working a lot on digitizing all of the, even the like physical um, artifacts, having photos that are accessible to the public and descriptions Great. of the artifacts and kind of their background story and photographs as well. Um, just for uh, this past week um, on our new um, Amhissa blog, uh, a, mm -hmm. I, post, or I got one of my blog posts posted um, about um, some of my favorite photos in the Transcona Museum's collection. And so I just talk oh, that's great. about them and I show them. But I love just sharing these photos with people and it's accessible to them as well. It is an open resource for them to look through of just these small pieces sure. of history uh, that can just incite so many questions and intrigue. Yes. It's wonderful. Yes. That's fantastic. That, that is really wonderful. I agree with you. And I think that the more we do this and the more that people at universities work with community partners, like, you know, museums in the community, for example, um, you know, the, the more we also create excitement around the study of, of history and what the humanities are and the value of, of them to, you know, our community more broadly. And uh, so all of this, I think, is, is absolutely essential work. Yeah, that's terrific. That's nice to hear about. Just a, a broad question to kind of end off with. Sure. So yeah. how overall, I know we've discussed kind of parts of, but how overall has the field of history changed with this pandemic or where do you mm -hmm. see it really going? Like, what is your yeah. ultimate goal for the field of history? <laughs> I think that is, a, it's a big question, a big but question. I think it has been, yeah. But I think we are in the midst of, you know, so a large scale kind of societal change, aren't we? Like we're, yeah. you know, so many different things have happened. Um, and I think that, 
you know, as certainly if I think about what's happening with what my colleagues at U of M in, in the history department have been doing during this period, I think that um, there's been an increased emphasis on public history um, in our department and increased emphasis on um, history also as um, an anti-racism practice, um, you know, that something that can that can change society for the good. And, you know, we have a department that's been an activist department for decades since far longer than I've been here. Um, but I, I feel like our focus has kind of, you know, we've become even more focused on some of those questions in, uh, in a really, really um, important and creative way. Um, so, you know, I hope that the whole discipline is, is, is going to go in this direction as well. And I think that those of us who study periods that don't seem, you've heard me talk about this before, are, you know, my period doesn't seem to be particularly political, right? Sometimes people think that the Middle Ages is somehow outside politics. Although I would say that probably fewer people think that now than they did maybe yeah. <laughs> just a few years ago. Um, and so I think that the, the recognition that our field has been kind of um, complicit also in some pretty big and uh, and sometimes um, pretty distressing questions um, about um, the past is uh, is something that we're all kind of coming to grips with and we're and we're facing up to. So uh, so you know I'm 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 also seeing that. So I, I I mean I think you know we're having these tough conversations, right? And and my colleague, my our new colleague, Sean Carlton, um, who is a Canadian historian, um, who's also in um, the Department of Indigenous Studies, but he works on, for example, the statues that are being torn down, you know, and what are, what are we doing about those things? What, what do people think about uh, those questions? And, uh, and my colleagues, David Churchill and Tina Chan are going to teach a course on anti-racist practice, um, you know, in, in, in the winter coming up. And uh, so we have, you know, people who are really kind of um, dealing with like head on with the, the difficult questions that our society is facing. And, uh, and, and it's, it's great to see. So especially perhaps, you know, as we've been in the midst of, yeah, of all of these difficulties that, um, and we've had to think about what our governments, you know, how they articulate the values of our community uh, and whether they are articulating our values or whether, you know, we want to push them perhaps to, and I think many of us would, think that we do want to push our, our leaders to, uh, to, to be perhaps a little bit more thoughtful and reflective about, uh, about, about our community's values. So I, I think that we are, you know, that's what we're trying to do. And, uh, and I think, you know, again, I think we're learning a lot from students. And, uh, and that, you know, what, what I'm seeing is that the students in our department are a very, very um, dynamic and engaged group of people. And you know that our colleagues say this periodically, they say, you know, I, I, and, and not with amazement either, but just with a sense of pride that the students in our department are as kind of focused and as engaged as you are. So, you know, it's, it's great to work with all of you. It's, uh, it, you know, it's a, it's a really good feeling. A lot of our passion towards history and some of these really difficult topics comes right from all of you teaching us these mm -hmm. um, like difficult things. In your research, some people um, may argue that it's not, well, it's so far in like the past. Why is that? That's right. Why is that important? But research on like you're doing a lot of gender-based research is and mm -hmm. just finding out exactly like 
how much agency did women have? How were these women viewed? How did they perceive themselves? Yes. Um, and kind of working around hostile or biased sources. That's this right. is all super important work that we can even apply to our lives right now and saying, okay, got it. what about the hostile sources that, or like biased sources that are we trying to overcome? Um, yep. and what kind of agency do certain groups in our society have? There's just so much you can apply. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, terrific. You know, you're absolutely right. Everything that we do, right, is uh, is also about our present, and uh, and and about the present that we want to live in and the future that we want to have, and uh, and it doesn't, yeah, in a sense, it doesn't matter how long ago the period is mm-hmm. that that we're studying because we are people of of now, and uh, and so we're going to, you know, we're going to bring our values and our perspectives to bear on, you know, whatever period we look at. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. All right. Well, do you have any last words uh, before? <laughs> <laughs> I I think this has been such a neat conversation, and you've given me you know so things to think about and uh, and and things to say to my colleagues also as we're as we're kind of thinking about our teaching or well yes people who are teaching um, in September and uh, and and things to look forward to as I as I come back to Winnipeg. Mm-hmm. So uh, so so you know I'm very much looking forward. I mean I will say that I've tried to make the best out of the period that we've that. We've been coming through, but I will really look forward to actually being in a room with, you know, yeah. colleagues and students, and uh, and having a chance, or or even just in the open air, which I think uh, you know we're very much hoping to do uh, at, at uh, a few times in September, is uh, to have some opportunities to actually see each other. So mm-hmm. uh, so that's the the thing that I'm looking forward to. I think yeah, in the short term. Yeah, I very much look forward to it as well. That will yeah. be a great day when we can finally all be together really again, well. learning yeah, yeah. and interacting. Mm-hmm. Exactly. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on this episode of All Things History with Amhissa. Um, we really appreciate it. And that was a great discussion. We would love to have you back. Definitely. Yeah. Ask anytime. <laughs> it's, it's been a real pleasure for me. Yeah. All right. Well, um, have a good rest of your summer and um, good luck on your um, endeavors as acting head. Thank you. Of the yes. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Yes. That's a, that's a definite, uh, a definite challenge. Well, I will. And you too.